Hey folks, what's up? Greg Smith here, at Greg Sauce on Twitter. Welcome to the 2QB Experience Podcast. Your home for all sorts of two-quarterback uh, podcasting ventures. Uh, today, uh, it's another solo show. Going to be a quick one. We're going to run through some basic Scott Fishbowl uh, strategy, a little primer for the format. We're about to start drafting very soon. And I'm also going to announce the winner of our contest, uh, the person who got entry into the Scott Fishbowl by taking part of our trivia contest uh, at 2QBs.com. And I'll give the answers to that trivia. We'll go over some like notes from that as well. Um, but that'll be it, a uh, short one. And so without further ado, let's dive in. I want to start off by talking about who won the contest uh, to get into the Scott Fishbowl. And of the trivia uh, questions, the high score was three out of six. <laughs> Not great, but uh, like I said in the last show, the questions were intentionally difficult and otherwise maybe even impossible to know all the answers to. Uh, but anyway, there were seven people who scored three out of six, and the winner uh, was a person by the name of Patrick Waterman. So congratulations, Patrick. Thank you for playing, and get stoked, man. You're in the Scott Fishbowl. Isn't that exciting? Well, I, I know I would be excited. I am excited to play in it myself, but um, apologies to everybody else who didn't win. Uh, better luck next year. Uh, keep on trying to get in. But unfortunately, I only had one spot to give away, and so that's going to Patrick. He's... Uh, going to be playing alongside a bunch of other analysts and fans in the Scott Fishbowl this year, uh, hashtag SFB8, if you want to kind of follow along the conversation and the the happenings that are going on around that format. But let's talk a little bit more about it. Let's talk about what the Scott Fishbowl is bringing us this season, and I want to talk about what hasn't changed, and we'll kick that off with the roster construction, the lineups. We're still doing a 22-round draft. This is still a super flex league. We have 11 total starters per team, and these are 12-team leagues. You have a quarterback spot, two running backs, three wide receivers, one tight end. Then you have a super flex spot, which typically is going to be taken up by a quarterback, as you're well aware if you've been listening to this podcast for a while. And then you have three regular flex spots where you can start a wide receiver, a running back, or a tight end. That's the same as it was last year, same as the year before. That has not changed. The scoring settings, as they always do, have changed from year to year. Looking at those scoring settings, we see that receptions are worth points again in the SFB. Uh, it's a half-point PPR league, and tight ends get an additional half-point per reception. So there's a slight bump for tight ends when they catch the ball. Otherwise, it's half-point PPR across the board for wide receivers and tight ends, and maybe if a quarterback catches the passes... You know, get stoked if you're Nick Foles in the Super Bowl. Not so much if you're Tom Brady. And while last year we had big points per first down scoring, we had a full point for a rushing first down or receiving first down, and a, an extra one and a half points for tight ends when they got a first down, those settings have been nerfed a little this year. The point value for a first down rushing and receiving has dropped down to 0.5 or half a point. Uh, and again, like receptions, tight ends get a slight bump for that. They get an extra half point for every first down they get either on the ground or through the air. And last year, that big first down bonus was mostly beneficial to running backs. Running backs, because they are used in short yard situations, generally get more first downs than most other positions. And because they touch the ball more on more plays in general than, say, a wide receiver, like a running back might see 20 carries, but a wide receiver might only see, you know, eight targets, and I, I guess 20 carries is a lot, but still, generally in those short yardage situations, 
first downs are going to go to rushers more often than they're going to go to receivers. And that includes quarterbacks who rush for them as well. So at a base level, bringing the value of first downs lower and raising the value of receptions is going to bring wide receivers and tight ends more in line with running backs in terms of relative value. Now, there are some caveats we have to throw into that because ultimately, unless you're talking about a flex spot in your lineup, you're not comparing position to position. And we do have three flexes, so you do have to do that to some extent. And a lot of people will tell you that you need to, quote-unquote, win the flex when you play fantasy. I don't fully subscribe to that mentality. I mean, there's value in it, and I do believe that I want to win the flex, but ultimately, I want to win everywhere. I want all of my positions to be as high-scoring as possible. And we are required to start three wide receivers and two running backs and one tight end all the time, every week, no matter what, regardless of what we do in the flex. And I don't necessarily want to punt any of those positions just to make it so that I'm winning in the flex, because if I'm giving up too much value at, say, wide receiver just to win the flex with a bunch of running backs, then it might end up ultimately still being negative value for me on the whole. But anyway, that's a discussion for another time. That's all about, you know, relative value between positions. Just talking about the scoring settings again. The other big difference that we're going to see here is with quarterback scoring and primarily as it pertains to turnovers interceptions specifically last year there was no penalty for an interception there was no penalty for a fumble you could not get negative points in last year's scott fishbowl that is changing this year as interceptions have gone from a zero value to a negative four point value and pick sixes you know interceptions returned for a touchdown by the defense, those are worth an additional negative two points. So if you throw a pick six, it completely wipes out six points, which is the equivalent of a passing touchdown in this league. This is a six-point-per-passing TD format. And now that we're really getting penalized for interceptions, that's going to change the way that we look at the quarterback position. What happens when we raise the, the penalty for an interception to negative four points? Well, we can look at this in two ways. First, we can compare it to last year's Scott Fishbowl, where interceptions had no impact. This is a huge deal, right? Last season, we could easily get away with having the guys who were going to turn the ball over a lot on our rosters, like Deshaun Kaiser. No problem, man. 21 interceptions, no big deal. They didn't count against you. His six fumbles didn't count against you either, but again, those that hasn't changed. The fumbles still aren't going to be a problem, but 21 picks... That's negative 84 points on the season for Kaiser, just from interceptions alone, if we take his stats from last year and apply this year's Scott Fishbowl scoring settings. And no, you probably weren't winning if you had Deshaun Kaiser on your roster and in your lineup anyway, but the point stands, this is a big deal for those mediocre quarterbacks, you know, the Blake Bortles, the Eli Mannings, the Jay Cutler types, like these guys who are going to throw picks, but we live with it because they, you know, do enough otherwise to, you know, keep our fantasy teams afloat. That's going to be a much bigger liability now. So the big question becomes, how much do we want to pay up for the quarterbacks who don't throw quite as many interceptions, the guys who are hyper-accurate? We can talk about the big-name guys like Tom Brady and Aaron Rodgers, but we can also talk about Alex Smith, a guy who's known famously for protecting the ball very well. Those guys are going to see a little bit of an uptick in value because they're not throwing interceptions. How much higher in value do they go? I don't know if I'm really qualified to answer that question yet. I don't really have a good feel for it. I need to do a little bit more research as the draft approaches here for SFB. But there is going to be some sort of tipping point where quarterbacks have to slide up your relative rankings a little bit because the interceptions matter so much now compared to before. Now that's in terms of comparing 
the scoring settings this year to last year, Scott Fishbowl specific. Now, what about if we are, what if this is your first year playing in the Scott Fishbowl and you don't have any recollection of how the league played out in 2017 and you're trying to compare these new settings to just a standard format, your standard four point per touchdown, negative two per interception, negative two per fumble. What does the comparison look like in that case where we're looking at the Scott Fishbowl versus a standard scoring league? And for quarterbacks, you might be surprised that it's not too different or maybe just not as different as you might expect. The players who saw the biggest uptick in value between a standard scoring league and current Scott Fishbowl settings were Russell Wilson, Carson Wentz, the aforementioned Deshaun Kaiser, strangely enough, and Cam Newton. What do these guys have in common? Rushing production for one, and aside from Deshaun Kaiser, uh, not too many interceptions relative to what else they give you. Uh, but but really, the rushing production is, is what stands out here. And that's because we're getting half points for every first down. And Russell Wilson rushed the ball 90 times. Wentz rushed it 64. Newton rushed it 128. And Kaiser rushed it 71 times. Tyrod Taylor was also in the mix. He rushed 78 times. But because he didn't do much else otherwise in the games that he played, he only saw about a 16-point difference between uh, you know, standard scoring and what he would score in the Scott Fishbowl last season. So in the case of Russell Wilson, the guy who had the most points difference, 27 points more under Scott Fishbowl settings, that only equates to 1.8 points per game. And I, sh- I shouldn't say only because 1.8 per game is kind of a lot. That's like getting an extra two-point conversion or you know having one fumble wiped away you know in a regular league Wentz actually had a bigger point per game difference between the two scoring systems uh, he would have scored 1.92 points more uh, under Scott Fishbowl rules than under standard rules but otherwise there weren't a whole lot of big spikes like if, if 27 points is the biggest difference between you know one scoring system and the other I don't know if we need to overdo our recalibration from standard format to Scott Fishbowl. We can definitely take the one big lesson that's rushing production from quarterbacks goes up in value. That's something you have to pay attention to. So whereas I might have had Tom Brady ranked ahead of Cam Newton and Russell Wilson in my rankings, I think I had Wilson higher than Brady anyway, but anyway, I might now be more willing to bump Cam ahead of him based upon what we expect him to do on the ground with his legs because all that rushing production not only is it just the general konami code trademark rich rebar but he's also gaining a lot of first downs when he does that which tacks on a half point every time just in general because the scott fishbowl does not penalize for fumbles and because it awards six points per passing touchdown instead of the standard four pretty much all quarterbacks are going to score more in the scott fishbowl than they would in a standard league I looked at the top 50 quarterbacks from last season under Scott Fishbowl scoring, and only two of them actually would have scored fewer points in a standard league. One of them was Jay Cutler, and the other was Matt Moore. I think the only big takeaway we can bring from that is that we should feel really, really sorry for Dolphins fans. Anyway, in general, quarterback scoring, if you're used to standard formats, isn't going to be too different. Again, rushing goes up, and if anything, that means you might want to deduct some value from... The passers who don't rush the ball, Drew Brees, Philip Rivers, Ben Roethlisberger, they don't gain very much moving from a standard setup to the Scott Fishbowl settings. The bigger overall question we need to ask ourselves when we're prepping for these drafts, though, is when do we start to take quarterbacks relative to other positions? 
and I do not have time to get into that now, but I will say that I'm probably going to stick to a late round or late pick quarterback strategy. It tends to serve me well. This is a super flex format, so you don't absolutely need to get three. Uh, I'll probably still try to end up with three or four coming out of the draft anyway, but I'm going to try to pick my spots. I'm going to try to find value with the position. I'm probably not going to pay up for the big time names, especially if they're going in the first round. You know, if the right guy slides to round two or round three, sure, maybe I'll think about it, especially if it's one of those rushers. But I'm not the only person who's going to be examining these scoring settings like this. There are going to be other people who realize that those rushing QBs go up in value, and I have a feeling that that means they're going to be drafted higher up than they normally would be. You know, uh, late round one, early round two, it'll be fun to find out. I can't wait. I am fascinated to see how much more willing people are to draft wide receivers in the early rounds. The past two seasons of Scott Fishbowl have been very running back centric and the scoring settings have shifted away from that a little bit, but I don't know if they've shifted away from it too much because we still get a half point per first down for rushing and receiving and plenty of running backs will attribute in both those categories, especially, you know, the, the really high end running backs, you know, Le'Veon Bell, Todd Gurley, those guys are still going to be probably the top picks off the board. I, I would imagine that they, they have to be. Scoring settings aside, they're just they represent something that's so scarce in the league that you can't really replicate that with much certainty later in the draft. They're going to have to be high picks. Yes, there will be some running backs who return that sort of value, like Todd Gurley was a second or third round pick last year in most formats. Now we're drafting him first overall for the most part. So clearly we see players jump up in value from year to year. And while Gurley's ascension there was a little bit more predictable than a lot of other players, it's difficult to pinpoint that sort of, you know, upside or shift in value ahead of time deeper in the draft. Like we're hearing a lot of positive reports about Joe Mixon right now. And I'm into Joe Mixon. I own him on a dynasty team. I, I think that he's going to be pretty good. I'm ready for him to kind of break out to some extent. But is he guaranteed to leapfrog, you know, all those second round running backs and become like a top five, top six, top seven guy? No, not at all. You can chase that upside, you know, in the second round, in the third round. I think that's that's fine. But the point is that it's not easy to predict who's going to make that sort of leap and when they're going to do it. And a lot of the times, you know, we, we talk about post-hype sleepers. These guys do it a year late. And and that that actually is kind of part of the case for Joe Mixon. It's like we, we expected big things from him as a rookie. Jeremy Hill kind of blocked his path. The Bengals had a terrible offensive line. Things are lining up for him to be a better play this year. The problem is that the hype is still kind of there. Like the bad 2017 performance he put up didn't generate enough recency bias to drive his cost down a ton. But then again, with Gurley last year, it didn't drive his cost down too much either. Like I said, he was still a second round, third round pick, just like Joe Mixon is this year. The parallels are, are there, but is Joe Mixon Todd Gurley? No, they're two different players. We can't you know, expect that one's completely going to mirror the other. But back to the general idea of running back versus wide receiver... I think this kind of speaks to a larger question in the fantasy community in general. Are we going to go too far with running back heavy draft starts? I think it's a distinct possibility. We've seen wide receiver production kind of drop off and kind of flatten out over the past couple of years. Like we've drafted, you know, certain wide receivers very highly. We kind of pumped up the zero RB draft strategy, like as a group, like the fantasy analyst community, the fantasy industrial complex really wanted zero RB to be a thing. And for a while, you know, it was, but last year that sort of strategy 
didn't pan out quite as well. Not, not, you know, with, you know, broad sweeping implications across all sorts of leagues. And now we're starting to see the pushback from that, right? We're seeing drafters really go after running backs in the early rounds, hot and heavy, sometimes starting out with three running backs in a row. Everybody's chasing those bell cow backs and, and the guys who only might become bell cow backs to the point where wide receiver has been devalued. And Scott Fish's settings for this format, while they'll still reward you know those bell cow running backs because of half point per first down, they're also going to reward receivers a little bit more than we're used to because we're getting half point PPR. And so after the big name players are gone, once we're into the middle rounds and the late rounds of the draft, it's going to be much more enticing to take a wide receiver for one of your flex spots than a lot of the running backs that are going to be available to you. The exact ins and outs of how that's going to work, you know, when to take a receiver, when to take a running back, is going to vary from draft to draft, player to player, team to team. But that's something I'm going to be fascinated to watch unfold during these drafts. Now, you've noticed I've kind of been avoiding the whole tight end conversation this whole time. And yes, there are tight end premiums in this league, but they're generally minor. Uh, An extra half point per first down, an extra half point per reception, that's nice. And that helps tight ends kind of get a little bit more in line with wide receivers and running backs for flex spot contention. But the real problem with tight end is that they're not really targeted as often or touch, touching the ball as often as wide receivers, as running backs. That's just the nature of the position. And because tight end is more injury prone, if you do pay up for one of the big name guys like Greg Olson or Rob Gronkowski or Travis Kelsey, you're taking on more risk, just pure injury risk to the point where, yes, those guys are elite and yes, they see volume that's more in line with other positions but because their injury risk is higher, is it really worth it? Maybe. And, and for some guys, it will be. It's just hard to know because injuries are so unpredictable. So as I do in most of my drafts in the Scott Fishbowl, I'm probably going to punt tight end and focus on the other positions just because the other positions are generally more predictable. Uh, predictable in volume, predictable in injury risk. And that I like that. I like predictability. Now, this is a giant tournament of 900 teams. Do I need to recalibrate based on that? Yes. I mean, we have to take more risk if we want to win the overall Scott Fishbowl. If we want to be the overall champion, there's more that goes into it than just having a predictable and safe team. In fact, if anything, safety is a bad thing and you want to take a few more risks. But for me, I'm going to play that out as I usually do in other ways. Correlation between quarterbacks and their receivers, you know, stacking guys on the same team, going after more big play threat type players, you know, the wide receivers who catch, you know, long touchdowns or just going after the cheap running backs who, you know, by luck might turn into bell cows, you know, those handcuff type running backs. Now I'm not necessarily looking to handcuff the running backs I draft early with their backups in the later rounds. If anything, I want to spread that out to maximize my risk and my upside. I want to take starters from one team and backups for another so that if my backup becomes a starter, then I have two starters. That's the way that I'm going to play into variance and go for more of a ceiling with my team rather than go after, you know, tight end or a riskier position. Now, I may still draft a tight end earlier than I expect. That That's going to be something I consider all the time. Like, that's, that's one thing I really try to preach when it comes to draft strategy is you want to try to maximize every pick and consider all possibilities at all picks. And while that's not really feasible and while, you know, there are diminishing returns on, like, how much effort you put into any given pick... There is something to be said about thinking outside the box and and maybe going against the grain or against your own instincts at certain points of the draft. And I'm going to be considering that from time to time. And I'll look to, you know, kind of play into variance and, and look to maximize upside in that way.
So that's where I'll stop the Scott Fishbowl discussion for now. This is kind of just my first foray into it. I might have more to say about it later on in uh, you know the podcast cycle here. You know, as we get closer to drafts, as drafts start to play out, as I read some more stuff from other people who are analyzing the format. But yeah, get pumped if you're playing in it. You got to be stoked. If you didn't get in, once again, that that's a bummer. But keep trying to get in. Play in satellites. Submit to these contests that are run through various sites like 2QBs.com. And hopefully one day you will get in. You'll be able to compete. And even if you can't compete in the main event, there's still a bunch of satellites that mimic these league settings. So you can kind of play along with this in your own way. It's going to be a ton of fun. I can't wait. Before we go, I do want to go over the trivia questions that we asked for the Scott Fishbowl entry giveaway. Just for full transparency here. So the first question didn't actually count towards the trivia, but it was, would you like to be added to the 2QB's mailing list? And of the 53 people who responded, 73.6% got this right. They said yes. The people who said no, I don't know what they're doing. The first real question we had in the trivia was, which 2QB's.com contributor finished best in last year's Scott Fishbowl? And no one got this right. Not a single person said Joe Pano. And while Joe Pano isn't a regular contributed to this site he has written for us and he finished 28th in last year's scott fishbowl the next closest person was brian malone and only one of the people who did the trivia made that guess and just for grins if we go back to 2016 that version of the scott fishbowl john proctor was the highest finisher among two qbs.com contributors he was 13th that year pretty amazing the next question was which quarterback has two top 12 weekly finishes over the past two seasons in games that he didn't start And I'll admit, we botched this one. I actually threw an extra answer in here. I tried to put up five quarterbacks who might have done it, you know, reasonable people you might think did it. And the answer we were looking for was Kevin Hogan of the Cleveland Browns. He did it twice. The other options were Jacoby Brissett, Joe Webb, Nick Foles, and Brock Osweiler. Little did I know when I wrote up this question that Brock Osweiler has actually also done it. So anybody who answered Hogan or Osweiler scored points for this. Don't worry, we, we, we scored you both. And yeah, Hogan was the overwhelming uh, response there. 41.5% of the, the respondents picked him. And we have talked about that on the show. So if you're a regular listener, you might have known that. The Brock Osweiler thing, I imagine people just looked it up. So yeah, that, that that's a pretty interesting one. It's crazy that both of them done it. The next question was, which quarterback did Sal Salvatore Stefanelli pick first in his original 2QB Fantasy League? And the answer was Aaron Brooks. This was actually the answer that got the fewest guesses in the trivia contest. Only three people got that one right, 5.7%. The next question was the same for me. Which QB did I take in my first two QB league? And the answer was Donovan McNabb. That was the overwhelming answer. 19 people had that guess, almost 36% of the respondents. There was actually a clue to both of these in the last episode. I said, if you err on the side of caution, you might nab entry into the Scott Fishbowl, Aaron being, you know, Aaron Brooks, Nab being an, an indicator for Donovan McNabb. So if you were creative enough to pay attention to that, maybe you got those answers right. The last question was, what is the third most common first initial for guests who have appeared on the 2QBXP podcast? The letter was B. 20.8% got that right, 11 people. Most people guessed either D or J. The last question was what animal has become the unofficial mascot of 2QBs via custom emojis in our Slack channel. And I think Sal and I have talked about this on the pod as well, or maybe on social media, but it's a duck. There was no duck emoji. 
I made a big stink about it in our Slack channel, and then Sal made me a duck emoji, and then he made me another duck emoji with sunglasses on it. So, ducks are the official emoji mascot of 2QBs.com. Now you know. So that does it. Those were the answers to our six trivia questions. Again, three out of six was the high score. You guys are going to have to do better next year. Before I sign off, one more little programming note. The podcast is going to go away for a little bit of time here leading into July. Sal and I are hunkering down to wrap up the 2QBs.com two-quarterback draft guide. This is something we started last year. It's a draft guide specific to two-quarterback and Superflex leagues. We have a ton of awesome content coming in this thing, a ton of awesome contributors, big-name folks, not just 2QBs.com contributors, people from all around the fantasy industry. You're really going to want to pick this up to prep for your two-quarterback drafts. We're planning to release it sometime after the middle of July. I think last year it was released on the 17th of July. We're aiming for that sort of date. Stay tuned to the website, to our Twitter account. Um, that's 2QBs.com, T-W-O-Q-B-S.com. Our Twitter handle is spelled the same way, at 2QBs. You can email us if you have any questions about the draft guide, how to buy it, when it's going to be available, all that good stuff. 2QBs at gmail.com. So get pumped up for that. Otherwise, if you want to find me on social media, at Greg Sauce on Twitter, stop by 2QBs.com. We'll still have articles there in addition to what's coming for the draft guide. I'll be back on the podcast airwaves as soon as I'm able after the draft guide stuff is done, hopefully talking more Scott Fishbowl talking general draft strategy for 2018, talking about the draft guide. Until then, adios. <laughs>